Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're going to cover all things maintenance from the 1965 to 75 era. I'm your host, Bill Koralakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian and Australian Air Forces, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s, titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in late 2024. So, let's kick it off. By the late 1960s, Global Hercules hours were accumulating, and Lockheed was learning a lot about its airplane. Several maintenance issues arose through that period, such as the cessation of using the C-130 side cargo door, completion of the C-130A fuel tank remediation program, and a bunch of wing cracking. We'll cover all of these, but first I'll do a quick refresh on what Dave Richardson talked about a few weeks ago in terms of maintenance reorganization within the RAF. The era began with a bit of organizational turmoil. Believing that squadron maintenance was the better way to go, 486 Squadron was disbanded in August 1964. With the decision to acquire the C-130E, and a concurrent decision to centralize intermediate-level maintenance, 486 Squadron was reformed in March 1966. By the end of 1966, first-line maintenance was given to the Herc Squadrons. This structure remained in effect until September 1973, when 486 Squadron absorbed all C-130 squadron-level maintenance. And it stayed that way until 1999, when 486 Squadron was disbanded yet again. All right, let's dive into some engineering. The 1965-75 decade began with an ominous engineering-related incident in Canada that immediately affected RAF C-130As. On the 15th of April, 1966, Flight Lieutenant John Moore of No. 435 Squadron of the Royal Canadian Air Force was over the Canadian prairies, in fact over Saskatchewan, at 25,000 feet above mean sea level. And that's when the bolts securing the forward cargo door failed on his aircraft, leading to an explosive decompression that blew the door open. The debris from the door was thrown into the number one and two engines, which crippled the aircraft's hydraulic system. The damage also affected aircraft structural integrity. Moore crash-landed on a field near Borden, Saskatchewan, and the aircraft was written off. Moore was flying a C-130B, which had the same side cargo door as 36 Squadron's C-130As. The RAF reviewed the incident and restricted C-130A operations to being unpressurized until the suspect bolts could be replaced. Eight aircraft doors were secured with new bolts, but it took eight months before the required bolts could be installed in the final four aircraft. Thus, they flew unpressurized for those eight months. The side cargo doors were not used again, and the RAF C-130Es were built without them. The cargo door issue was a dangerous risk not realized in Australia, but another insidious aircraft killer was lurking inside RAF C-130s. 
wing corrosion, and fatigue. The C-130A Wing Fuel Tank Corrosion Remediation Program, which I've talked about in previous episodes, was completed in March 1967, when A-97-212 was returned to 36 Squadron from 2 AD after being a two-aircraft depot for 12 months. Concurrently, the first sign of trouble with C-130A wing fatigue and corrosion came when two aircraft were grounded as a precaution for wing cracks, in what was an all-too-prescient comment from Commanding Officer 36 Squadron in his February 1967 War Stand Report regarding the cracks in the wing fittings, he wrote, These repairs may be very time-consuming, end quote. Indeed, they were. In October 1970, analysis of the high USAF flying rate in Vietnam led to the realization that center wing box fatigue was a significant issue requiring full replacement of the wing box for all C-130Es with no option for repair. Lockheed tested a redesigned center wing box on a fatigue rig to over 40,000 equivalent hours, giving them the confidence needed to recommend a fleet-wide replacement program. So, beginning in 1969, U.S. C-130Es entered the center wing box replacement program. Australia deferred this repair until 1972 when Lockheed was contracted to rectify the issue for all RAF C-130Es with the aspiration of ensuring the aircraft's wings would be serviceable until the planned withdrawal date of 1986. And those of you in the know realize that we kept the C-130Es well beyond that. All C-130Es were flown to Marietta, Georgia for this repair in the early 1970s. The new center wing was basically of the same construction as that installed in the RAF's C-130Hs. While at Marietta, some outer wing modifications were also completed, but these repairs did not rectify the majority of the issues with the C-130E outer wings. C-130Es built prior to 1973 which of course included the RAF's aircraft because they were acquired in 1966, had outer wings of the same design and material as C-130B wings. Although the material and design were considered to be of a good standard, post-Vietnam analysis indicated several components in the outer wings required a redesign due to the excessive fatigue evidence after high operational use. To create the improved wing, Lockheed adopted a different aluminium alloy, which was less susceptible to stress corrosion cracking and fatigue movement. Lockheed's engineers also thickened many parts to improve durability. Cracking also plagued other areas of the C-130E wing, notably in the engine dry bay access doors, and these were changed from a square design to an elliptical design to reduce fatigue cracking. Water removal was altered to eliminate weep holes in skin panel risers, which were susceptible to fatigue cracking. And finally, sealants and rainbow fittings, which are the joints that hold major wing components together, between the skin and wing joints were improved in the new wing. This was the wing design standard incorporated in the RAF C-130Hs that were acquired in 1978. Despite the new center wings, it was not until late 1975 when the RAF began to consider the need for an investigation of the overall C-130E wing condition. If you're an engineer, get ready. This is the sexy stuff coming. Boron fibers. 
While the C-130E fatigue issues were being considered by engineers, a series of C-130A wing corrosion and fatigue problems were discovered. Despite the installation of new planks on the upper surface of the C-130A wings in the late 1960s, in Commanding Officer 36 Squadron's February 1970 report, he observed, and this is a quote, recently discovered corrosion in the upper central wing planking and spar caps in 212 and corrosion in the outboard upper rear spar caps of 214 could be a problem in the future, end quote. He was right. Then, in August 1970, two aircraft were found with cracks in wing rainbow fittings. And remember, those fittings hold major wing sections together, so they're pretty important. An investigation was conducted by Australian research laboratories and RAF engineers, which determined there was extensive corrosion in the lap joints of the wing planks, and cracks were appearing in some other areas, notably in the risers. The initial repair work focused on the application of corrosion inhibitors in the C-130A wing planks. Where inhibitors were not sufficient, wing plank repairs often required full replacement, a costly and time-consuming affair. This substantial repair program was done in the 2AD hangar at Richmond. The first tranche of work was completed by July 74, but the problem was ongoing and cracking issues had yet to be resolved. At that point, the C-130As were nearing the end of their plan's life, but this repair work was essential to extend their lives to their withdrawal date of 1978. The normal way of fixing a crack in wing risers was to install a reinforcement bracket when the crack reached about 24 centimeters in length. To install a patch like this took an inordinate amount of time, and the results were sometimes less than ideal. It could cause additional damage due to the need for more holes to be drilled, which could in turn crack themselves, and often resulted in over-stiffening of the riser and made it difficult to detect and monitor crack propagation. To overcome these repair difficulties and the inherent disadvantages of that mechanical repair in the risers, RAF engineers turned to the Aeronautical Research Laboratory team, who built upon general dynamics research into the use of boron fiber patches. Boron fiber patches were a form of adhesive bonded repair. The concept for the patch was to place fibers over the cracks, spanning the cracks with boron. Without having to undergo major disassembly, the application process was much shorter, a factor of up to six for riser repairs. And so to describe to you what the difference in the patches were, the mechanical patch was basically a steel plate with a bunch of bolts that held it over the crack. And the boron fiber patch was basically something that was painted on over the cracks. Although the original stressor was not removed, the boron fiber patch was predicted to be strong enough to provide for a longer fatigue life of the repaired area. The RAF's first boron fiber patches applied to cracks were used on C-130As in May 1975 and were eventually commonly used on both wing planks and risers. As a new repair technique, there was some uncertainty about the durability of the repairs, particularly as the success of the repair was governed by temperature and time under heat blankets. But the repair scheme was so successful, it was used extensively in later years on C-130E cracked risers where stress corrosion cracking was rife, 
and it was the key to maintaining C-130E outer wing planks. The RAF was in fact the only C-130E user to operate the aircraft without replacing those outer planks. This innovative solution caught the attention of aircraft engineers around the world. For example, it was used on B-52s. And 2AD was recognized for its stellar work in the initial boron fiber repairs, earning a commendation from Lockheed. Between 75 and 77, 300 boron patches were applied to C-130s, and by 1985, the RAF had installed over 1,000 boron patches in C-130s, with an estimated savings of around $100 million. And of course, there was also much improved aircraft availability. Let's look at another vexing issue of the mid-1970s, and this one is rudder kickback. During a difficult crosswind landing, a senior pilot was working the rudder pretty hard when he experienced rudder kickback. This raised concern among the pilots, and many of them began to vigorously test the rudders while they were taxiing on their way to takeoff. In time, others reported rudder kickback. This led to a large turnover of rudder boost packs, which were overhauled by 2AD, but with no faults found. The problem continued until a Lockheed Field Service representative visited Richmond and noticed the vigorous rudder checks. And he advised everyone that the rudder boost packs were not designed for such strenuous loads and that the checks should be stopped. So the checks were stopped and lo and behold, the problem went away. Chalk up a win for the engineers over the pilots on that one. Another area that engineers get involved in is helping C-130s become unbogged. So we'll have a little look at bogging and some examples of bogging and how aircrafts became bogged and were unbogged. Let's start with some theory. For a heavy vehicle or aircraft to cross a road or bridge or runway or taxiway, the ground or the bridge has to be strong enough to support the weight of the vehicle or the aircraft. There are two types of measurements used when talking about runway or taxiway strength. Hard surface runway strengths are determined by a pavement classification number, which determines how heavy an aircraft can be for its given tire pressure and number and type of tires. For example, a fat tire with low tire pressure is less stressful on runway surfaces because it spreads the weight over a larger area. Hence, sometimes C-130s would deflate their tires to minimize the risk of damaging a runway, whether it was paved or not. The other method for determining runway strength is the California Bearing Ratio, or CBR, which measures the strength of the subgrade of a runway. A special tool is used by RAF airfield engineers to determine the CBR of unpaved runways. Unfortunately, sometimes the measurements, whether paved or not, were incorrect or not available. In those instances, the C-130 crews would rely on the airfield operator to give them an assessment of whether a C-130 could land and taxi at a given airfield, or they simply took their chances. If a crew broke through the surface of a runway or taxiway, they were either unaware of the CBR or PCN, or maybe they accidentally taxied off the assessed area, or perhaps the information was invalid. Once a tire was through the surface, it was going to be hard to get out. Crews tried various means of getting out of a bog. Sometimes if it was a shallow bog, they could maybe rock the aircraft back and forth and get themselves out. 
but quite often the lean was such that the propeller tips of the outer engine on the sunken side would be dangerously close to the ground, therefore the engine couldn't be run. There are some great pictures of a crew at Caroba sitting on the very edge of the upper wing, which was sticking up a long way into the sky because their other side of the aircraft was bogged fairly deeply. And that was while hundreds of natives pulled on long ropes to try and get the aircraft out. It didn't work, and a bulldozer was eventually found to pull them out. I've also seen a picture of dozens of locals pushing up on the side of a C-130A thinking they're going to lift it out of the ground while tractors pulled from the front. If all else failed, then RAF maintenance would fly out a rescue team. Those rescue teams used airbags to lift the sunken side wing and then filled the hole under the sunken tires and then towed or taxied the aircraft out of the bog. Those airbags would sit on some sort of a structure and they'd have a pump of some sort with them and they would slowly fill the airbags and it was quite a wide area that the airbags covered underneath the wing and it would just basically push the wing upwards thereby lifting the aircraft out of the bog. In some cases, the bog C-130 was blocking a runway for other aircraft, and rescue teams had to find alternative ways to get to the site, such as via helicopter or maybe even airdrop. And that in fact happened at Bulo River in the Northern Territory in 1984. Although we're talking mostly about the 65 to 75 era, this is a good place to highlight a bit of humor that a 36 Squadron Ops officer displayed when he recorded the first C-130H bogging in the Squadron Ops log, which happened, by the way, within weeks of getting the brand new aircraft. So on the 22nd of September 1978, the Ops log says, and this is a quote, Flight's Lieutenant Dave Yarpy Harley made the first H-model depth record by bogging A97-001 to 3 feet BGL at Warren. And of course, BGL stood for below ground level. A good sense of humor there. Well, that's all for today. In fact, that's all for 2023. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast series. I'll be taking a few weeks break over Christmas and we'll publish the next episode around mid-January. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a good holiday season. See you next year.